Hello, internet friends. Oh, you've come just in time for the tea finishing up. Hold on. If you must know, and I know that you must, I'm having a honey bush with a fruit medley that I got in Amsterdam. You are sitting with me in the living room of my Airbnb in New York City, and I have just gotten back from traveling internationally to attempt to purchase heavy machinery for my tribe. If you haven't caught up, you're very behind, but I'm in works and talks and deposits to buy a tractor. That's all very stressful. So I'm drinking a heck ton of tea, like a stain my teeth amount of tea. I invite you to join me. Oh my goodness. Oh, I'm so excited. I'm literally just topping up my glass. More than delicious. It smells like a love letter to myself. I actually have a love letter to myself today. Uh, we have episode 19 of Threadings entitled A Love Letter to My Seven-Year-Old Self Reproductive Justice Within Capitalism, where I, your host, Isma Gwendolyn, of Threadings, the newsletter and podcast, where we discuss Black love studies, Black feminism, and other things holding me together. I, a social worker and a former Sunday school teacher, remind us all that we owe the children of this world, including our childhood selves, economic and reproductive justice. I have for you a one-take read of this essay, Threadings number 19. If you're new here, I only do one take reads, as in I read it once all the way through. I do not go back, I do not edit, and I do not get a second take. So, as to create and maintain the level of intimacy, I feel writing these as much as I feel reading them. I know that if I give myself ample, endless opportunities to get it perfect, I'll spin over and over and over again about how I pronounced that word or how I stumbled over myself. And what I really want is to talk to you all plainly about the things in this world that are holding me together at the seams. At any point in time, I am close to bursting. That's why this podcast is called Threadings, the things that literally stitch my personhood together. And today, it's the blackity black black woman as history of reproductive rights and reproductive justice and the intersections of reproductive justice and economic justice because you cannot have one without the other in racial capitalism so without further ado let me put this kettle down hold on without further ado capitalism has brainwashed us into thinking that children are burdensome by design And here in the newsletter, we have children of my tribe who work with no school desks in 2022. And we both know it. I feel this each and every time I say out loud, I think I might want kids someday. And the person I'm talking to physically grimaces. Why is our first thought of children always something to the effect of how will you afford these kids? Do we realize how much control we are under? And internet friends, I am so deeply concerned with the way we, the general populace, think about children. We could be living in a world where our first thought, our first emotion, when we think of forthcoming children is joy. Joy for oneself in stewarding a child. Joy for another in welcoming new life. Joy in one's community for adding another beloved member to our families. Joy in the honor of shaping this person that is literally made of and made for the future. Children teach us about our present and call forth futures we cannot imagine just by existing. 
Children are time benders in their imaginations. They are shape shifters in the way they exponentially grow. They're world-class manifestors. Children wield and share the magic of world building effortlessly in ways we literally cannot access as adults. Why do we live in a world where our first thought in thinking of children is panic and scarcity? instead of being excited to exalt them. What has happened to us that the first thing that we think of is a lack of funds, is the presence of debt? What happened to us that the first thing that we think of is a lack of funds or a presence of debt? The state works so hard to shackle us to debt, even if you do the most to intentionally avoid it individually as an individual person it is a miracle if you avoid debt by way of housing transportation education medical care the way that's set up avoiding debt on an individual basis is sincerely a superhuman feat the moment that you have kids all that goes out the window so i me me ismatsu i fundamentally reject being ruled by money when it comes to living as a human Humans decided quite some time ago that we do not need rulers, we need collaboration. So I reject economic systems, I reject societal pressure, I reject gender expectations or any other new age malarkey attempts at convincing me that children are anything less than the blessings of the earth. Children are by far and away some of our most precious members of society. They see the world so clearly, they dream unabashed. They regularly rewrite what's possible. Despite the fact that we subjugate them, in spite of the fact that we lock them away in schoolhouses and away with homework and inside of adult-sized expectations, despite all that, they continue to regularly shape us in the kindest, most childlike love because they cannot help themselves. Children are made of love, and love is one of the highest goods I know. So this is an essay that will come to you in three parts. One, what is reproductive justice? Two, the false choice present in procreation. And three, a letter to my teeny tiny self. Thank you all for supporting, subscribing, and paying for threadings. I really appreciate it. Section one. What is reproductive justice? We have resources for this section listed immediately. And at the end of this essay, I will read the We Remember brochure. The cover is pictured above in the newsletter and it was disseminated by women of African descent for reproductive justice and believe in 1971 because it is some bars. It is some bars. You can find it linked in bold in this section of the essay or by clicking on the picture in the newsletter. Also, all of the sources are linked in the description of each episode, wherever you listen to the writings. Reproductive justice is a critical feminist framework designed by a group of black women who organized and called themselves the women of African descent for reproductive justice. It is an active politic, as in you are designed to get up and move, and this politic is designed to stand against fascist reproductive policies in the United States and in the rest of the world. We have three core beliefs in reproductive justice. One, the right to have a child. Two, the right to not have a child. And three, the right to parent a child or children in safe and healthy environments. All three, one, two, three, all three of these beliefs must be upheld by a politic or a policy for it to be considered a sound politic of justice. 
So this means that arguing poor people shouldn't have kids, citing point three, you know, like you're supposed to have children in such healthy environments, is not a sound politic of justice because it forces you to take point one, the right to have a child, away from a group that needs support. In fact, we're going to take some words directly from the Sister Song website here, who is like the organization for organizing for reproductive rights today, almost entirely and exclusively run by black women, just saying. Here are the steps we must take if we want a world where reproductive justice is the norm rather than the exception. Directly from the website, to achieve reproductive justice, we must first analyze power systems. Reproductive justice in the U.S. is based on gendered, sexualized, and racialized acts of dominance that occur on a daily basis. Reproductive justice works to understand and eradicate these nuanced dynamics. We have addressing intersecting intersecting oppressions. Aubrey Lord, mother, once said, there is no such thing as a single issue struggle because we do not live single issue lives. Marginalized women face multiple oppressions and we can only win freedom by addressing how they impact one another. We also have centering the most marginalized. Our society will not be free until the most vulnerable people have access to the resources and full human rights to live self-determined lives without fear, discrimination, or retaliation. Self-determined lives. As in you get to decide what you need for yourself and you have the access to make those dreams happen for you without fear, without discrimination, and without retaliation. And for to join together across issues and identities. All oppressions impact our reproductive lives. All oppressions, race, gender, class, language, citizenship, um, ability status, all of them, all oppressions impact our reproductive lives. Reproductive justice is simply a human right seen through the lens of nuanced ways. Oppression impacts self-determined family creation, not determined by circumstance, not determined by money, not determined by marital status, not determined by whether you personally have access to say yes or no to a child, self-determined family creation. The intersectionality of reproductive justice is both an opportunity and a call to come together as one movement with the power to win freedom for all oppressed peoples. Reproductive justice is about access, not choice. This is so important and it often gets overlooked. Reproductive justice is about access. It is not about choice, not solely about choice. Choice is an important part, but choice Individual choice is useless without access to an ample amount of choices in the first place. Reproductive justice, a framework developed and coagulated by a black woman in 1994, although obviously we were organizing reproductive justice way before that. It's just, you know, when the term got coined. Also wishes to dispel the idea of birth as a strictly individualistic choice. We don't want to view birth as an individual choice. When we focus on individual choice and individual access, we let the state get away with under-providing for her constituents. We cannot choose to do the work of the state for them. Justice is an active politic, meaning that its tenets are one that compel you to collaborative action rather than being satisfied with you sitting on your ass judging people via the internet. Reproductive justice is also not possible without economic justice. The best way to ensure that children are parented in safe and healthy environments is to push hard. 
for poverty eradication efforts. It's to push very hard for poverty eradication efforts. And as we have previously discussed, limiting access to procreation does not actually solve poverty. The only long-term solution to poverty is reallocation of resources and equipping those impoverished with tools of sustainable communal autonomy. I would argue, in fact, that the best way to eradicate poverty is to create conditions where parenting is not burdensome. The best way to eradicate poverty is to create conditions where parenting is not burdensome. How many people would breathe easier as a parent if housing, food, education, medical care, and basic utilities, okay, talking internet, clean water, electricity, and transportation, how many people would breathe easier if these basic necessities of life were guaranteed to them free of charge? And why are we as the masses not sprinting to create this world? Because it's very possible. This is also your reminder that reproductive justice is an inherently black forward, black built, black facing framework. Still to this day, the people that have the least amount of access to choice in this world are black and brown women. The people that have the least amount of access in this world are black and brown women. We are still to this day, the people laying out our minds, our bodies and our politics to create true access where ourself, for ourselves where the state has denied us. We create access where the state has denied us. The above brochure is attached to this email. Again, we're going to read it after the essay is done. Here we have section two, the false choices present in procreation. And we have a picture of Fannie Lou Hamer, one of my like most sincere, most intimate, most absolute civil rights giants. And one of the reasons that she was propelled into activism was in part because she was a victim of forced sterilization herself. There is not a lot simple about the conditions of reproduction under poverty or the conditions of reproduction in the world that we live in as a whole, poverty or not. I'm going to make you a brief list here. Three points, three quick points, even though the subject could be an essay in its own right. OK, so we have, for one, the forced choice of having children due to lack of contraceptive care and abortion access. That's a very easy one. It's one that people think of all the time. It is unethical. It is unfair. It is straight up not right to uh, require people to have children when they did not have access to say no in the first place. We have childhood mortality's effect on birthing rates, including but not limited to having more children because many of your children don't survive, becoming demoralized, bereaved, and heartbroken, losing children to poverty in front of your eyes. Risking one's life to give birth, particularly in places suffering heavily under medical apartheid, and that absolutely includes the United States. We have forced sterilization, a state-inflicted atrocity targeting black, brown, and indigenous women as a means of psychological, physical, and communal control. Conception, labor, delivery, and child rearing, none of these are quick and easy choices. What a disservice we do to the marginalized to invest in such a myth. We haven't even begun to speak about unwelcome pregnancy by sexual assault. The idea that not having children is simple when access to even basic contraception is not a worldwide guarantee, that is a cruel and a lackluster analysis. I always forget to drink my tea in the middle of these. Mm. And it's perfect. It's the perfect cup we knew would happen. Oh my goodness. 
There's also a flip side to the false choice that we often don't speak of. It is really easy to understand false choice when it's from the angle of forced birth. For some reason, we struggle as a public to recognize false choice when it's on the flip side of that same coin, when someone who would otherwise have a baby decides not to procreate because of the solvable conditions around them. False choice. False choice is also present in you wanting a baby but deciding when it's not feasible for you because of the suffering that you were born into. That is not a sympathetic viewpoint, that is a tragedy. If you would have a baby, but you're scared of climate change crises that the rich caused, you should be enraged. If you would have a baby, but you are under insurmountable education or medical debt, willful architecture designed by the ruling class, you should be enraged. If you would have a baby, but you are living under the stress of high stress neighborhoods, if you would have a baby, but you're food insecure, if you would have a baby, but for the crumbling conditions of late stage capitalism, conditions that a very specific group of people made for their sole benefit, if you would have a baby, but you're looking around at catastrophe after catastrophe and wondering how you would subject a child to this, you are a victim of false choice. You should be fucking enraged. We have enough. In the United States, we have enough worldwide in resources and technology to give everybody food, water, clothing, shelter, education, medical support. We have enough. Scarcity is invented for the profit of the wealthy. Poverty and scarcity are synonymous here and everywhere. There is nothing innate and there is nothing inevitable about any of the above conditions. I'm gonna bring it in close, okay? You ready? You listening? You have been brainwashed into thinking that you made the noble choice by foregoing kids and that you are somehow better, wiser, more deserving of understanding than the people that choose to continue their communities anyhow. You have been brainwashed into thinking that it is okay to convert your fury that should be directed at the ruling class, you're converting that into smarmy-ass internet takes towards the most vulnerable among us. You have been brainwashed, and in short, you are a bully because you were told that your suffering is more noble than the suffering of the impoverished. Stop it. Stop it. You, too, are a victim of false choice. You too were born into this world without your consent into a planet that is being strangled by the ultra wealthy. You too were born into a system where the bottom class is exploited passively and actively by the top class. Why are you angry at poor people for having children when none of this is their fault? The propaganda is so real. Today, Today is a great day for unlearning propaganda, today and every day. We have the politics of deservingness here next. It's a subheading. I really need to write an essay about it in itself, but I reference the politics of deservingness a ton on my various platforms. I'm on TikTok. I'm on Instagram. I'd be on Twitter occasionally when Twitter don't stress me the fuck out. I reference it to the point where I most definitely need a standalone essay grappling with the topic and that will come to you soon. I thank you for your patience. My life is wild right now. But to sum up what I'm arguing... 
a politic of deservingness organizes around granting access to individuals, groups, or nation states that the people in power consider deserving. And access comes in the form of resources, structural support, or sympathetic storytelling. A politic of deservingness organizes around granting access, as in resources, as in money, as in opportunity, as in jobs, as in welfare, okay, to individuals, groups, or nations that the people in charge consider deserving. While giving people what they in quotes deserve might find might sound like fine or equitable on the surface, we have to remember who it is in charge of a resource allocation and whether there might be bias present in doling out said resources. In this context, a politic of deservingness pops up when we discuss how children do not deserve poverty. At face value, that's not a sentiment that I disagree with. Of course children don't deserve poverty. The problem arises when we ask some alternate questions, right? Okay, so if they don't deserve poverty, who does? At what age is is poverty officially your fault? When we think about who does and who does not deserve poverty, why are children our first thought? Why is it never disabled adults or the elderly? Why is it never laborers in colonized countries still being exploited for human labor for fractions of pennies on the billions they make corporations? Why don't we ever think of refugees and those displaced by rampant, unchecked imperialism? Do they deserve their circumstances? This is why I heavily warn against thinking of resources and rights in terms of what we do and do not deserve. It's far too inconsistent. Who deserves what and when and why changes on who is holding the resources. Who deserves what is entirely dependent on what the person holding the purse strings thinks is deserving. If the impoverished of the world are only deserving of our sympathy and our humanizing, if they agree to be voluntarily sterile, we have not made any moves towards justice. We are enacting the same vicious control that the state does. We reduce the beauty of reproduction down to a dollar sign. And furthermore, hey, just because it bears restating, I know I already said this, but just to run this back, you should be considering yourself a future poor person rather than a future rich one. Under, under capitalism, if everything stays the same, if everything stays the way that it is, you are so much, you are so much more likely to end up impoverished than you are to end up rich. Let's revisit tenant one of why poverty exists. If you need like a longer version of this, run it back. That's episode one Um, and also like episode two of this series. Poverty exists to ensure the ruling class can experience extreme luxury and produce extreme waste without delay or consequence by having an endless workforce to exploit. Let's take a word of uh, let's take a look at the word endless there an endless workforce to exploit. That's how the rich can produce extreme luxury and produce extreme waste because all that takes extreme amounts of money and that stream of money is endless. Why is it endless? Because they create an endless workforce to exploit. If impoverished nations in this world are suddenly by some way of like magic button, okay, somebody waves a magic wand and ceases reproduction among the most vulnerable. Where do you think that the ultra wealthy would get the workforce they need to exploit? Do you think it would just stop there? Do you think that would stop them? No, 
What fate have we already witnessed the mythical middle class subjected to? What have we already seen? We watch us get kicked into poverty. We in the United States are currently watching the national treasury trigger a recession because too many people have jobs. Let's remind ourselves of the birth climate in this world also while we're here. So birth is trending downward worldwide in the United States. Uh, And countries that are experiencing hybrid trends are usually doing so because of the stage of development that they're in. There are sources linked in the newsletter. Please take a look. The people currently least likely to have a kid in the United States are people experiencing poverty. In fact, if you are in poverty in the United States, you are, if, or sorry, if you are in the United States, you are more likely to be pulled into poverty by having a child than you are to be someone in poverty voluntarily producing a child. I have a couple follow-ups. So if you feel good about your choice to not procreate because of your financial situation, why are you under the impression that you will just never, ever touch poverty? How, how certain are you and why are you certain? Because you can become poor at any time. If you feel good about your choice not to procreate because of the world that we live in, do you realize that that was a choice that was made for you? You didn't make that choice. The the conditions of the world made that choice for you. And the worldwide conditions that we're inheriting, that's a result, that's a direct consequence of the rich living exorbitant lives on the backs of the working class. Are you okay with other people making that choice for you? Does everybody in these two formal groups, these two, these two groups of I'm not going to procreate, do you know that new children are going to come anyways? So even if you yourself do not plan on bringing new children into this world, why would you not want to adopt a politic that takes care of them rather than bemoans their existence? Also, because, hey, you know, we got to say it. We have to say it. Disabled people are incredibly likely to be poor and are kept systematically in poverty by the welfare system in Western nations, most particularly the United States. Disabled people are also far more likely to be sterilized than able-bodied counterparts, most especially if the disabled person in question is not white. Nations under colonization often do not have the resources for nationwide welfare. So I'm talking like, we call that often like the third world or the global south, but I like to refer to them as nations under colonization. Nations under the threat and the consequence of imperialism. Often do not have the resources for nationwide welfare. So you are extra vulnerable if you are experiencing dual-sided poverty, as in personal lack of access to funds and a structural lack of access to resources. You can become disabled at any point in time. In fact... If you intend on growing old, disability is a matter of when, not if, okay? So the politics of deservingness are far more likely to turn against you than they ever are likely to be for you. In conclusion, I really can't believe I managed to keep this essay this short because I could go on and on and on about each and every subject here, but I wanted to give us a brief overview. My conclusions are, I think more people need kids in their life. I think more people need to be consistently around children. 
I think it's easy to think of children as mouths to feed when you don't get to see their wonder. I think it's easy or even simple to conceive of children as selfish economic decisions that you make when you think of birth as this nuclear individual endeavor to, to, to secure your legacy or to pass wealth down or some, something like that. That's why we have children under capitalism. But why do we have children as, as human beings that exist? Keeping children out of the sight of people that are not legally obliged to them makes it easy to market them as burdensome if you don't have them. It is easy to market children as burdensome if they're constantly out of your sight, if the only people that interact with children on a daily basis are people that have children. Most of all, I actually think that true selfishness lies in sitting still. The true selfishness here is not running, leaping, dancing, fighting, breathing a better world into existence for these children that will inherit the earth. Children are going to be the people that inherit this earth that we are burning, including myself. I am a child that is going to inherit this burning earth. You know what's easy and simple? You know what's selfish? Hopelessness. It is absolutely to be easy. It is absolutely easy to be hopeless when your politic is content with you sitting on your ass watching bad things happen. It took me a while to get here, okay? Like, I did not pop out of the womb excited to be alive. Most definitely not. But I am now, as an adult, proud of my parents for having me. And I feel confident that I can raise a child who delights in being alive, even if they do not delight in the circumstances of their birth. I am happy to be alive, even though I am still clawing my way out of poverty, okay? Clawing, as in I'll have savings. I'm still happy to be alive. I love the work that I do. So I'm ending this with section three. A letter to my teeny tiny self. And if you are on the loose letter, you can see uh, a picture of my teeny tiny self in an outfit that I loved. I'm wearing one of my best fits. I'm on my roller skates. I'm in my element. I think my two front teeth had like just grown in. Hello, you. I'm so glad we've been talking forever. And I'm happy that you thought to think of me when you were young and frustrated, isolated and misunderstood. Adults forget what it's like to be children so fast. They look at you like you're being unreasonable for not complying with this world that don't make no fucking sense. This world don't make any fucking sense. And I'm happy that you never lost your gumption. This world isn't meant to make sense. This world is meant to force you to either comply or rebel and God bless you in those moments for thinking of me when you were forced to comply thank you for all the times you sat in some small prayer or drew a picture or wrote in a journal I will remember what this feels like I will remember what it feels like to be this age to be this small and to think that the world and that my adults should be better than this and when I am big when I am big, I will remember what this feels like. Everybody and their mama and your mama wanted to call you unreasonable, stubborn, too idealistic. 
my blessed darling whip of a girl they were all right they were right you will not reason with this world that wishes you dead you will not budge on what you know to be true and you absolutely are idealistic in part because you remember what it is like to be voiceless and downtrodden and to this day you stay making adults mad <laughs> mad mad at their grown age mad you amaze me I swore I would never forget you and so I have brought you along this ride with me baby are we being loud now all your wishes for fame are coming true. Everyone can see us. We have a solid voice that carries and compels folks to sit down and listen. You are a master manifestor. You even got that rasp that you always wanted. Shout out to 22-year-old me for smoking all my troubles down the drain every day after work. Actually, I should say every morning because, you know, I work the night shift. You keep me in steady wonderful, easy love with children. Children are to this day one of my favorite people groups, if not my favorite. You look up at me through time and space and you remind me to go harder. One day, one day I'll introduce you to our daughter. One day we will all sit together and have tea. One day with my baby on one knee and you on the other, we will laugh at stories of how I took a mug of piping hot Lipton on the bus every day since age seven. We will laugh and laugh at having lived this long despite some of our best efforts. We will laugh and joy at the space we've created for ourselves where you and me and she can breathe together and think of one another as fleeting, dreaming, beautiful, stubborn little girls. Beloved child, thank you for urging me to never let go of you. I do every bit of this for you. Love and love, Isma Tukwandalan. Now, as promised, I am reading We Remember from African-American women who are for reproductive freedom. Choice is the essence of freedom. It's what we African-Americans have struggled for all these years. The right to choose where we would sit on the bus, the right to vote, the right for each of us to select our own paths, to dream, and to reach for our dreams the right to choose how we would or would not live our lives. This freedom to choose and to exercise our choices is what we fought and died for. Brought here in chains, worked like mules, bred like beasts, whipped one day and sold the next. For 244 years, we were held in bondage. Somebody said that we were less than human and not fit for freedom. Somebody said we were like children and could not be trusted to think for ourselves. Somebody owned our flesh and decided if and when and with whom and how our bodies were to be used. Somebody said that black women could be raped, held in concubinage, forced to bear children year in and year out, but often not raise them. Oh, yes. We have known how painful it is to be without choice in this land. 
Those of us who remember the bad old days when Jim Crow ruled and segregation was the way of things know the hardships and indignities we faced. We were free, but few or none of us were our own. We were free, but few or none, or none were our own choices. Somebody said where we could live and couldn't, where we could work, what schools we could go to, what we could eat, how we could travel. Somebody prevented us from voting. Somebody said we should be paid less than other workers. Somebody burned crosses, harassed and terrorized us in order to keep us down. Now, once again, somebody is trying to say that we can't handle the freedom of choice. Only this time they're saying African-American women can't think for themselves and therefore can't be allowed to make serious decisions. Somebody's saying that we should not have the freedom to take charge of our personal lives and protect our health. That we only have limited rights over our bodies. Somebody's once again forcing women to acts of desperation because somebody's saying that if women have unintended pregnancies, it's too bad but they must pay the price. Somebody's saying that we must have babies whether we choose to or not. Doesn't matter what we say, doesn't matter how we feel. Some say that abortion under any circumstance is wrong. Others that rape and incest and danger to the life of the women are the only exceptions. Doesn't matter that nobody's saying who decides if it was rape or incest, if a woman's word is good enough, if she must go into court to prove it. Doesn't matter that she might not be able to take care of a baby, that the problems also affect girls barely out of adolescence, that our children are having children. Doesn't matter if you're poor or pregnant, go on welfare or walk away. What does matter is that we know abortions will still be done, legal or not. This was written years ago, y'all. We know that the consequences when women are forced to make choices without protection, the coat hangers and the knitting needles that are punctured in the wombs of women forced to seek back alley abortions on kitchen tables at the hands of butchers. The women who died screaming in agony, awash with their own blood. The women who were made sterile. All the women who endured the pain of makeshift surgery with no anesthetics. Wrist fatal infection. We understand why African-American women risk their lives then and why they seek safe, legal abortion now. It's a matter of survival, hunger, and homelessness, inadequate housing and income to properly provide for themselves and their children, family instability, rape, incest, abuse, too young, too old, too sick, too tired, emotional, physical, mental, economic, social the reasons for not carrying a pregnancy to term are endless and varied, personal, urgent, and private. And all, and for all these pressing reasons, African-American women once again will be among the first forced to risk their lives if abortion is made illegal. There have always been those who have stood in the way of us exercising our rights, who have tried to restrict our choices. There probably always will be, but we, we who have been oppressed should not be swayed in our opposition to tyranny of any kind, especially attempts to take away our reproductive freedom. You may believe abortion is wrong. We respect your belief and we will do all in our power to protect that choice for you. 
You may decide abortion is not an option you would choose. Reproductive freedom guarantees your right not to. All we ask is that no one deny another human being the right to make her own choice. That no one condemn her to exercising her choices in ways that endanger her health and her life. And that nobody prevent others from creating safe, affordable, legal conditions to accommodate women, whatever choices they make. Reproductive freedom gives us each the right to make our own choices and guarantees us a safe, legal, affordable support system. It is the right to choose. We are still an embattled people beset with life and death issues. Black America is under siege. Drugs, the scrounge of our community, are wiping out one, two, three generations. We are killing each other. We are killing ourselves and each other. Rape and other unspeakable acts of violence are becoming sickeningly common. Babies linger on death's door at risk of birth. Born addicted to crack and cocaine, born underweight and undernourished, born AIDS affected, an ever-growing number of our children are being abandoned, being mentally, physically, spiritually abused. Homelessness, hunger, unemployment run rife. Poverty grows. Our people cry out in desperation, anger, and need. Meanwhile, those somebodies who claim that they're pro-life aren't moved to help the living. They're not out here fighting to break the stranglehold of drugs and violence in our communities, trying to save our children, or moving to provide infant and maternal nutrition health programs. Eradicating our poverty isn't on their agenda. No, somebody's too busy picketing, vandalizing, and sometimes bombing family planning clinics, harassing women, and denying funds to poor women seeking abortions. So when somebody denouncing Abortion claims that they're pro-life. Remind them of an old saying that our grandmothers often use. It's not important what people say. It's what they do. And remember who we are. Remember our history. Our continuing struggle for freedom. Remember to tell them that we remember. Reproductive freedom means, one, the right to comprehensive, age-appropriate information about sexuality and reproductive. Two, the right to choose to have a child. Three, the right to good, affordable health care to ensure a safe pregnancy and delivery. Four, the right to health services to help the infertile achieve pregnancy. Five, the right to choose not to have a child. Six, the right to full range of contraceptive services and age-appropriate information about reproduction. Seven, the right to choose to end an unwanted pregnancy. Eight, the right to safe, legal, affordable abortion services. Nine, the right to make informed choices. Ten, the right to easily accessible health care that is proven to be safe and effective. And eleven, the right to reproductive health and to make our own reproductive choices. Signed by the following. Biley Avery from the National Black Women's Self-Help Project. Reverend Willie Barrow from Operation Push. Donna Brazel from Housing Now. Shirley Chisholm, come on. National Political Congress of Black Women. Representative Cardis Collins from U.S. Congress. Ramona Edelin from National Urban Coalition. 
Jackie Gates from the National Association of Negro Businesses and Professional Women's Club, Incorporated. Marcia Ann Gillespie from Miss Magazine. Dorothy Height from the National Negro of the National Council of Negro Women. Jewel Jackson McCabe from the National Coalition of 100 Black Women. Julianne Malvo from the San Francisco Black Leadership Forum. Eleanor Holmes Norton from Georgetown University Law School. C. Dolores Tucker from the DNC Black Caucus. Patricia Tyson from the Religious Coalition for Abortion Rights. Maxine Waters from the Black Women's Forum. And Faye Waddleton from Planned Parenthood Federation of America. I believe, if I am not mistaken, this was written in 1971. I'm double checking this right now. Yeah. This plan fit circulated decades ago and every word is still relevant. You see how intrinsically economic justice and reproductive justice are linked. If we want true choice, if we want true access, if we want true freedom to create choice and access for ourselves and our communities, if we want it for us, by us, we need the money. We need the nutrition. We need the food sovereignty. We need the education. And all of those things are heavily inhibited, if not stopped altogether in their tracks by the presence and the persistence of poverty. We owe the children of this world, we owe ourselves that have not really truly outgrown childhood. I owe myself today in present. I owe my future self, the beautiful steward of a beautiful daughter. I owe my past selves, a little girl with gumption and grit and a gaze that does not waver. I owe us all freedom. Freedom comes in many forms, but first and foremost, under racial capitalism, freedom comes by running us a fucking check. Economic freedom is reproductive freedom. Reproductive justice is economic justice. And all of these freedoms, all of these justices, as Fannie Lou Hamer said, God's not going to put it in your lap. If you don't get up and shuffle your feet. Nothing is going to happen in this world. So I conclude today by compelling us all to action. Wherever you are and whatever you are doing, find a way to do a drop in the bucket more. I know that we're tired. I barely sleep. But I can't sleep in the way that I am waiting for the dawn. A new world is coming like the dawn. If you are interested in supporting my plights for economic justice, which is also most definitely reproductive justice, I need to talk more about this fundraiser and the agricultural opportunities that we're making for women to work, for women to work and support their children directly, because the agricultural backbone of Africa as a whole and in Sierra Leone are the women 
the women of Sierra Leone and the women of my tribe specifically are the ones doing the majority, the vast majority of agricultural work. So if you have not already donated a dollar to make sure that me and my family have a tractor and a couple other things that we need to make sure that harvesting season goes well next year, I would heavily appreciate it. Oh, my voice is sore. This is what I get for yelling. All right. I hope that the work of your day passed through your hands with ease. Until next time.